If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome to the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about the East India Company with John Wilson, who's Professor in Modern History at King's College London. John has written widely on British rule in India, and right now he's focusing on the post-colonial world. Putting the questions to John was our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Thank you. It's great to join you. Great. Um, So as usual, we'll cover the top questions put to Google about this subject, along with some excellent listener questions that have come in over the last few weeks. And to start with, perhaps we can just establish which East India Company we're talking about here and when it was established. We're talking about um, the English East India Company, um, which was established in in 1600. Um, In a sense, it wasn't even English. This was the London, London East India Company, because it was very much founded by traders from um, the city of London, um, and its 
uh, trade was kind of was often often opposed by merchants um, from other parts of of England. So um, you know, kind of l- later on, um, you know, kind of as as, as the, the English state becomes the British state after the Act of Union seventeen oh seven, and so forth. Um, the English East India Company has more of a kind of British role, but to start with, it is very much English and very much London. And there are kind of there is a, there is a Dutch East India Company. Um, there's the there's the Estado de Indies, which is the, the Portuguese uh, company. There are French organisations. There's a Danish East India Company even um, that develop. Hmm. So, so can we talk a bit about how this this English or this this London company is, is formed? Then you, you know the the structure of it, the the revolutionary nature of it, almost. And had anything any charter like this been granted before? Yes, I mean it's not it's not revolutionary. Um, it's uh, it is a change in in the structure of financing trade, uh, though. Um, so it's kind of an incremental change. Um, there had been companies before um, throughout the 1500s, the kind of Muscovy Company, um, for example. Um, kind of a variety of a variety of companies that, that trade with the Levant Company, trade with the Middle East. Um, you have the companies that are interested in trading um, and uh, colonizing the Americas. So these India companies are very much within that kind of world. Um, what's distinct about the East India Company um, in, in the moment it's founded is it is it's a joint stock company um, in which uh, it's the company itself that does the trading rather than the individual traders. So um, up until that point, companies had tended to be um, coalitions of, of traders who banded together and retained their individual trading interests. But the East India Company pushes that a little bit further and actually says, if you are if you are involved in the East India Company, if you're a merchant in the East India Company, you don't have an individual trading interest. Your interests are subordinated into the interests of the of, of the company as a whole, which is the way in which we, um, you know, kind of see companies now. Um, you know, kind of if, if you if you work for for Google and then start, I don't know, setting up your own private uh, internet search engine, uh, you're, you're going to get sacked. And exactly the same thing was going on in the East India Company. So uh, this this joint enterprise then, can we talk a bit more about um, where they were trading and what the products were? Well, I mean, to start with, the East India Company um, was interested in trading predominantly in Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, the, the there's all sorts of kind of discussion of the the great riches of the East Indies, of the Spice Islands, um, and so forth. And and it was initially, um, you know, kind of the idea of of, of spices that is attractive, uh, and you know, kind of luxury food items, I guess, uh, that is that is uh, attractive to to London merchants. Um, and also the idea of a market, the idea of a market market for kind of English goods. And at the time, it's kind of wool goods predominantly um, selling wool to, to kind of hot Asian com- countries didn't work out particularly well for obvious reasons. Um, but then um, through a kind of complicated process and, and the uh, the way in which the British, the, the English fails to compete with the Dutch, I think, is one key uh, factor. Um, the company moves westwards and uh, moves to India and so becomes much more interested in kind of sort of the Indian uh, South Asian peninsula um, and trade still in spices, still is importing spices, but is also particularly um, became interested in um, cotton and in textiles and so forth. And that's what really grew uh, the company's commercial uh, role in. in, in um, so the, the company's uh, trade expanded, particularly with with the expansion of, of uh, trade in cotton. At the same time, as a kind of consumer revolution is happening in in England and and in the whole of Europe, really, where people are starting to kind of uh, wear finer fabrics and what were once very very sort of elite products. Um, you know, cotton shirts and so forth become, you know, sort of items that ordinary members of the middle class, not people who are poor, but sort of uh, middle uh, class people can wear. So those kind of two things combine. 
And so these are, are manufactured goods that are manufactured in India rather than raw materials. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So these are these are manufactured. It's manufactured clothes. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting innovations occur. So um, clothes sizing originates with the East India Company for England because in order, if you're going to buy lots of shirts, you need to know roughly what kinds of sizes you need to buy. Whereas you know, if, if you make having them made in England, then your tailor will make them, and it's much more simple. You just give them the measurements. So, so it's manufactured goods. Um, it, it is some cloth as well. So it's both both of those things. And you mentioned some spices and and the the, the goods that initially attracted them to the area. There are other other companies, the the Dutch and so on, that have have a greater claim in these areas. Is that right? Yeah. So in in um, Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, um, Malaysia, and so forth, um, uh, the um, Dutch East India Company just kind of retains more more power for longer. And these areas that initially the Portuguese were much more involved in, and, and then uh, the Dutch Dutch East India Company retains some kind of dominance. And obviously Indonesia remains kind of a Portuguese, you know, the, or, or the, the Netherlands remains the kind of dominant European power in Indonesia until uh, the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if we can talk about India then, um, what's happening in India at this time? There's a Mughal empire, but um, what, what's happening in India? What's this, the state of power there? So in um, talking really about the 1600s in India, um, you know, this is a kind of relatively prosperous society and all sorts of debates about kind of the relative standard of living in the kind of most prosperous parts of India compared to the most prosperous Europe, parts of Europe. But it's not that different. Um, uh, the, the politics is it's complicated and you have a sort of a, an, an empire, but the empire um, has quite a weak presence throughout the whole of India and there's lots of smaller kind of uh, states, principalities, governorships, etc., who who have more 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 dominance. And and trade is very, very important and and um, a trade is important to, to sustaining um, political power in India um, often. I mean, it's very different in different parts of India. This is a very big place. Um, so this is somewhere that is vibrant, has really kind of strong... Uh, maritime and also kind of landed trading connections uh, that, you know, kind of European trading company wanting to kind of get a slice of the Indian economy really would be very, very interested in having some kind of presence within. Right. And and so when this um, British English company um, first starts making inroads um, in, into India, if you like, what's the kind of response? I know we're talking again, you men- mentioned about a vast area, but what's the more general response? Is it, it favourable to the trade or is there some hesitance there? So... Um... So there's a missing piece here, which um, which okay. kind of we, we I think we need uh, so somewhere somewhere we need to talk about the East India Company. What kind of organisation East India Company is? So so um, the East India Company was initially founded by kind of London traders, but what's very very important about it is um, is is the fact that it is a a, a company at a time when most trade is not organised by companies. And that's the really, really important thing. When we see that word company, we need to kind of forget most of the things we know about companies when we're talking about the early East India Company, because um, what company really means is organisation. And in some ways, it means something a bit like a state. So the East India Company is more like a government than it is like a company today. Um, It's interested in making money, but the reason why the traders who wanted to trade with India or with Indonesia or wherever created a company is because they thought that to trade in India or or Southeast Asia or whatever, you needed to have um, weapons, you needed to have an army, you needed to have kind of a legal system, you needed to have the kind of things that we now would consider, um, you know, sort of uh, to be more the prerogative of a state than a company. And so when the East India Company went to India, it went there not as simply a kind of bunch of private traders who who arrive peacefully and want to uh, trade, um, you know, kind of in, in an entirely sort of consensual way, 
um, as we would normally imagine companies would do. In most cases, obviously, there are exceptions. Um, but it went there as as, as a violent force. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of controversy around that at the time um, and throughout, throughout the kind of 17th century where um, critics of the East India Company say, actually, we can trade with India perfectly peacefully. If we go to India as, a mer- as merchants, as some did, um, you know, arrive and talk to the kind of governors of provinces, talk to local merchants, we can do business and it works and we make money and it's mutually beneficial. Um, and so, so when traders arrived in India um, as traders, they were received often very positively. They were received, um, you know, kind of as people who were able to ship goods that were being produced in India to markets in Europe that otherwise Indian traders wouldn't have access to. They were treated as people who potentially have had supplies of capital. Um, you know, they were they were often involved in kind of sort of inter-Indian trade in, in you know, uh, or trade with other parts of um, Asia, for example, kind of the horse trade to Persia, to Iran. Um, you know, so so that, so as traders, the East India Company were, were received very positively and, and other, other traders who... Um, were flouting the monopoly. There's a, the East India Company establishes a monopoly and says that only the company is able to trade uh, uh, with, with India. But there are other trade, there are traders, British traders who, who flout that. So as traders, the English merchants, British merchants are treated well. Um, but the East India Company is always doing more than trading. It's always saying, in order to trade, we need to use force. We need to um, threaten. We need to kind of build force. Um, you know, kind of in order to to kind of back up trade. Um, And to that kind of presence, not surprisingly, the Indian response is fairly negative. Um, Well, perhaps we could talk more about that move towards um, force over collaboration in in a little while. Um, But just talking about um, in the 1600s, how the East India Company was perceived um, by by the royals, by the government. I mean, clearly they were sanctioned to do this kind of trading at this point. There, There was little problem with them doing this. So, so the East India Company was, um, so in Britain, the East India Company was an organisation which had royal uh, sanction. It was approved entirely by, uh, you know, kind of a, a royal charter, which later becomes a kind of parliamentary charter. Um, you know, so it, this is a body that um, that is, is in a sense a part, an arm of the state, or at least has a very, very strong state stamp saying that what it's doing is right. Um, and, you know, kind of it, it structures as a company, it, it, it's, it's owned by its investors, um, you know, very prominent kind of people, uh, members of the royal family monarchs kind of invest in it. Um, and in early in its history, it also actually financially kind of backs the British state. So it backs uh, British governments. It lends money to the state. By the 1760s, 1770s, the, the relationship is the other way around and, and uh, the East India Company is, is needing to borrow money from the British government. But to start with, it's 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 a, it's a financial support for the British state. So, so it exi- exists alongside... A set of other institutions that exist that, that are created in, in around uh, the turn of the seventeenth um, century, such as the Bank of England, that are very much part of this um, mercantile financial um, state that's created in England. The East India Company is always um, is always is always two different things at the same time. It's always a, okay. a trade. It's always a trader which is um, trading, if you like, consensually to some degree, and also is also using force and uh, extracting, kind of trying to extract concessions from government, you know, and trying to insist on monopolies and so forth. And that's kind of there from the start. And what the the, the factor that's blocking, if you like, the East India Company's, um, you know, kind of expansion and its kind of increasing use of violence to kind of to, to to trade and to make money is simply the fact that it's just not very powerful compared to the Indian Indian states. That the Mughal state is very powerful. Uh, you have an empire that is capable of deploying, you know, millions of troops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so. Um, 
you know, if the East India Company, you know, gets a bit uppity, you know, kind of thinks that it needs to kind of uh, to to kind of put um, men in arms into battle in order to kind of get its, you know, insist upon its commercial privileges or whatever, it's going to be defeated, and that's what happens until until the kind of uh, until well into the eighteenth century. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, 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 there's always the kind of potential for for uh, for, for violence and, and fortification is is um, is certainly from the you know kind of from the the, the end of the 1600s certainly um, a century before before any kind of conquest there is there were forts are being built right so so is it fair to say then there is a uh, obviously you say violence is always prevalent but um, there's a shift in violent for 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 protection of trade interests and all the rest of it but then a move to um, an imperial project and violence for those means but if, I mean so violence is always violence is always used to protect the company's presence um, and I don't think in a sense there, there is never the imperial project comes incredibly late um, but what there is um, is uh, a desire by the British to protect what they have and to protect what they have often in a very kind of sort of paranoid way so they they don't trust Indian uh, rulers they don't trust Indian traders necessarily so um so they'll kind of fortify and then that creates a kind of dynamic that means that they needed to kind of bring more troops in order to defend what they have already so and that's that's how kind of their borders if you like keep pushing outwards and outwards and they keep on conquering more more territory and there is the opportunity for money there's the opportunity for money um increasingly through the 18th century not only from trade but also from effectively hiring out their troops uh to Indian rulers um you know, kind of uh, being being sort of um, effectively mercenaries. You know, kind of because because they they're building this military force in order to protect their presence because they believe force is necessary. Um, they have troops that, that can be hired out then then for for use by Indian rulers, and, and that's kind of how the company begins to get more and more involved in sort of in, in war and so forth in India. Um, it's I mean the, the imperial project is something that comes actually very very late. Okay, well, perhaps I jumped us forward a bit there then. Um, but talking about this this growth of, of force, um, there's a question on Twitter from at um, Peter Murphy one um, asking purely uh, how did they recruit soldiers competing with the regular British army? Was it just a matter of of money, or how how did that recruitment happen? So the, they um, so they recruited soldiers from from Britain, um, you know, competing with the British army. They recruited from different places. Uh, you know, kind of tending to, you know, lots of kind of Irish troops, for example. Um, you know, the kind of possibility of kind of potentially greater, um, you know, greater spoils, etc. Kind of from going going to India is is um, is was there. Um, they were recruiting at, t- at times when uh, maybe the kind of regular British army wasn't fighting in, in in Europe, so there wasn't kind of so much of a of a, of a need for troops. Um, so. Um, so they're very, they're, they're kind of part of, if you like, the sort of British European military labour market. But it's important that you know, kind of throughout um, throughout the growth of the East India Company, the majority of troops are recruited in, in India. Most troops who fight in India for the East India Company, um, at least from the kind of middle of the 18th century, as the as the company's army increases, are Indian, um, and there, there, the East India Company is part of. And a military labour market. I mean, there are people whose family business is is being a soldier, and that's what they do, and they. Um, you know, kind of find uh, an army to work for. And East India Company increasingly is the most um, lucrative and most secure kind of place to work in that kind of situation. Okay, so so how else do they go about consolidating this power? Then obviously they're get, gaining the manpower, um, but there's also the, de- the decline in, in the Mughal Empire. Um, it, how much of that is a factor or how else do they go about consolidating that growth? So 
I think that what's, what's important in the rise of the East India Company is a, a moments of crisis in Indian governance. Um, and, um, you know, 50, 30 years ago, everyone would have talked about the decline of the Mughal Empire. You'd have talked about the crisis of the Mughal Empire, and that created some kind of power vacuum. That's not true. I mean, that's not what happened. There was, there's always um, effective states in India. Um, you know, sort of, it's not... Um, I, I think if if if, uh, if India had been anarchy, then the East India Company wouldn't have been interested because probably there wouldn't have been money to be made. Um, so... Um, but but what does what did kind of escal, you know escalate and expand allow the, the company to expand were moments of very particular crisis when um, maybe for five years maybe ten years whatever there's a kind of a breakdown of of ordinary uh, politics and you know a new kind of political order is coming about and there you have lots of uh, Indian rulers who need armies and are willing to pay the East India Company to uh, to um, support them um, and uh, you know kind of succession battles and um, just sort of you know kind of uncertainty and and so one very particular particularly important moment which i think is 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 the most important moment in the rise of the east india company um is 1739 and the arrival of the the kind of iranian uh, ruler nader shah in in india um who arrives with this army in in a kind of what seems quite a shock uh um defeats he defeated the mughal emperor in delhi um and uh and Really, kind of the the whole Indian political system goes into shock because all of a sudden the the figurehead has been effectively decapitated, and Nader Shah very briefly dis- declares himself to be the Mughal emperor, and says that the Mughal emperor of the time is his viceroy, um, and you know kind of takes lots of money out of the Mughal treasury and, and kind of eventually goes back to Iran with it, and that sort of creates this sort of shock that lasts for for a few years, and um, and that means actually that the kind of amount of violence and the amount of instability across India increases, and that means that. The East India Company has an opportunity really to, to, to you know, hire out its military wares. And, um, and there's, you know, it has these forts and it has forts that are quite secure and are, and are, and are places where um, people with money or, uh, you know, family and so forth could, could have some kind of relative amount of safety. And so um, in, in, in very uncertain, unstable political times. And so you've, you have, you know, Fort William, Calcutta, for example, being used as a kind of uh, as a safe haven by by um, uh, different kind of Indian families and so forth. And that then kind of embroils the company into Indian politics and, and helps this process of expansion. So, so it's not, the, not so much the Mughal Empire's decline as, as very particular moments of crisis that, that, that uh, give the company an opportunity to, to kind of expand its political role. Right. So, yeah, clearly many, many moments of opportunity there. But um, there's, it, how, how did it move towards this, uh, if this is the right word, exploitation on a greater scale. Uh, I mean, many will know, um, perhaps going a bit later on in the timeline, um, the rape of Bengal and, and exploitation of these regions on, on a much greater scale. Um, ha- wh- what's that transition? It's wrong to talk about the company's exploitation on a greater scale because the East India Company never extracted extraordinary amounts of resources from anywhere in India and then trans- transported it into in, to, to Britain. You know, lots of people would say that, I don't think that's what, what occurred. Um, what is more important in kind of meaning that kind of East India Company ruled India is relatively poor is actually the breakdown of, of political institutions. Um, so um, because the company isn't interested in the wealth of India, it's not interested in economic growth, it's interested in making sure that its staff have, are paid and it's, making, it's interested in making sure that its, um, its presence is safe and it doesn't matter if, you know, 20 miles away... Uh, you know, peasants are extremely poor, or if peasants are wealthy. Um, uh, so, 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 
I mean, there's a kind of, you know, the, the famine of Bengal in 1769-70 is not caused, it was not caused by the company going and, um, you know, taking large quantities of grain from, from, uh, from every Indian peasant, although it was going around doing that to some degree. It's caused by the complete breakdown of the market and of, and of trade in, in, the, in the province so that, so that traders just don't trust that they're ever going to get any money if they, if they sell anything. So they keep their grain in their grain, in their grain uh, warehouses um, and uh, and so you know, kind of people people starve. So so um, in, I think that's that, that's the most important way to see the kind of the the if you like the negative features of the company's presence. It, it's this quite violent presence that um, is really only interested in protecting its own security. Um, and of course, there are people who do make money in that in that situation. There are people who make lots of money. Uh, there's plunder, yeah, of course, you know, of course. But but more importantly, and more generally, over a longer period of time. Um, what, what happens is the kind of breakdown of effective governance throughout um, throughout throughout British Old India. I mean, the, uh, the the company is exactly the opposite of what people described it as, as later. You know, as somehow some effective rule of law, Pax Britannica. You know, in fact, I think probably there's more violence in East India Company ruled um, India than there, than there was beforehand uh, because uh, you know, kind of local. Landlords, uh, there's not much of a check on local landlords going up, beating up peasants, for example, that kind of thing. So, so violence and oppression gets pushed downwards. Um, it's it's very, you know, these tiny companies are not really interested in murder. They're not really interested in in theft. They're interested in crimes against the company. Um, you know, kind of. So, so, so there's a, the, the state is not effective in the way in which we'd imagine it. It, it needs to be in order to kind of make keep a, uh, you know, kind of make make society kind of prosperous. Mm-hmm. So, if we can go again, sorry, jumping around again, back to the earlier days. Um, a, a question from a teacher um, who teaches A level, um, Alex Dobbs on Twitter. In what ways did the growth of the East India Company in the 17th century bring about the change in the English economy? And considering the historical context, how significant were these changes? So, it's hard to say that the East India Company directly caused changes in the English economy, but there is a kind of symbiotic relationship between things the East India Company is doing and changes in the English economy. And in particular, the rise of a sort of consumer culture, um, the way in which goods that were considered luxury goods um, became affordable for a larger section of the population, so kind of middle class, not just kind of a small elite. Um, and, and, I, and I think the kind of an expansion overall in the amount of kind of international trade that the British economy is kind of plugged into. So, um, you know, kind of things like... Um, uh, which I mentioned a moment ago, you know, clothing sizes are introduced. Um, the, so the, the way in which kind of trade happens changes. So it's, you know, lo- you know, bulk goods are being bought and shipped back rather than, you know, bulk manufactured goods are being bought and shipped back rather than, uh, you know, kind of manufacturing ha- happening kind of very locally to where people are. So so those kind of shifts are, are, are important. But they're to, I wouldn't say it's, it's the East India Company necessarily that's driving that. It's kind of, um, it's surfing shifts that are happening and that probably would have, that other organisations would have facilitated, I think, um, you know, kind of, yeah. I mean, maybe another company, maybe if the East India Company hadn't have been there, the Dutch company would have been meeting this demand, you know. Um, mm. um, so, but, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine that the, the English would have allowed that to happen. So an East, an East India Company would have been created, which is kind of precisely what does happen. So, um, but, but, it, but there is a really important change. There's a kind of change towards a, this kind of pattern of consumer spending that's important. Um, if, if we look at um, if there is such thing an average administrator in, in the East India Company, their, the experience or the influence they held, um, 
how did that change from the the smaller forts that were initially established through to um, you know later positions of influence and positions of power? So, so the the average administrator um, working for the East India Company in in the say the early seventeenth um, century would would be a kind of clerk would be someone who you know maybe would be um, you know working within a fort or within a factory. Um, most likely to be involved in trade in some way um, to begin with, um, uh, but you know would would potentially be involved, uh, you know, keeping warehouses, uh, might be involved in um, something relating to kind of maintaining military power, maintaining the kind of the fortifications and so forth. Um, you know, they may may be involved in negotiating with local rulers, etc. Um, uh, but you know, kind of um, trade would have been t- taken up a lot of their time. Um, they would have. Um, you know, seen themselves really as kind of citizens of that, the community of that fort. Um, they would have, you know, kind of the, all, all of the, you know, kind of English people there would have eaten together every day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's there's a kind of a, a, a kind of life, um, a kind of collegial life, if you like, within within the uh, the fort, you know, to begin with, and so forth. And that that obviously shifts enormously. You know, the average administrator by the 1830s, 1840s would probably would, would have been. Um, stationed in a district capital somewhere it would be, um, you know, stationed in a town where um, they're perhaps one of uh, two, three, four, maybe five, five to, depends really, you know, five other kind of Britons. They would have been maybe a, a kind of surgeon, um, you know, some kind of some kind of military presence, um, or maybe a, a judge. They might have been a tax collector, a collector, etc. So a, a, a relatively small community of Britons within within an Indian town. That's the difference. And they're they're you know they would. Have some kind of fortified place they, they could they could they could live, but you know, kind of they, they and, and most likely actually they live on the edge of Indian towns. So um, you know, you look at uh, kind of Indian cities now, and the area, the kind of the, the, the area of government headquarters uh, are sort of on the edge of the old pre-British kind of uh, commercial centre often, um, and um, you know, kind of, but that's a very different life. It's a life about government. It's a life about you know, maybe maybe kind of presiding over a court. It's a life around, um, you know, a lot of it would have been about making sure that Indian landholders pay their taxes and figure out what to do if they don't. Do you call the troops in? Do you sell their assets? Um, you know, I think an important thing is that the amount of rules, if you like, that they're subject to have increased enormously and in that, um, you know, say by the 1820s or whatever, there's a system of regulations that government govern British power. Um, and if you like, the, the aim of those regulations is to, is to provide security for British officials um, because they're in a country they don't understand. They they can barely speak the language. They're supposed to speak the language, but usually they don't very well. Um, they don't know what to do in most situations, and so they, they they need some kind of guide. And the regulations are there in order to to some degree to hold them to account, but to provide a, a sense of what they, what do they need to do. So so effectively, they've become bureaucrats from you know clerks and merchants, you know, kind of who lead some kind of bureaucratic life in a fort, the, the, the British official has become simply a kind of a, a bureaucrat whose role is to kind of uphold the kind of bureaucratic nature of British power um, in, in India. Okay. Um, so you mentioned there's obviously a huge amount of money at stake and there's a huge amount driving the self-interest of the company to protect itself. But I think, is it fair to say that um, in popular um, view, certainly corruption and, and embezzlement seem pretty endemic um well they, they, they're popularly perceived to be endemic um how true is that the corruption and embezzlement isn't it was endemic um in the company's uh 
kind of rule. Um, but I think that's missing the point. I think that kind of if you like corruption is corruption from a company that is acting in a way that is not is not kind of benefiting India particularly. So um, you know, sort of, um, and, and I think that's that's there's a lot of what, what's really interesting is that the East India Company itself is critical of corruption. The British state is in, is interested in corruption and embezzlement. Um, so you know, when when we talk about oh, you know, corruption and embezzlement, you know, kind of is endemic uh, in kind of the late 18th or early 19th century. We're actually using the kind of language that the company is is, is using. You know, that's that's exactly the kind of thing that the company is concerned with. Um, and so periodically, it kind of sort of it, the East India Company or the British state says, oh, look, it's all this one person's fault, uh, you know, kind of uh, this, you know, kind of uh, the, the Bengal famine or, you know, this poverty or whatever, you know, kind of you can blame this one person because they've just been taking lots of money. Um, but maybe actually it's kind of something more systematic about the nature of British, British power as it develops in, in the area. So um, so corruption's more important, if you like, as almost a, as a kind of language, as a way of, a way in which the, the British are talking about India all the time, you know, kind of constantly, say, constantly saying the problem is corruption, where, whereas in a sense that's avoiding the kind of bigger issue, which is well, what's the nature of British power in, 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 the, in the subcontinent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, taking us back in the timeline, probably to the early days um, of what, what we're, when we're talking about, um, a top Google question is uh, about the East India Company and the slave trade. And obviously, um, there, there, there must be some key key links there. I really like to cover them in this chat. What, what can you say about those links? Between- so, so there is some kind of connection with the East India Company and the slave trade, but it's not it's not huge. Um, so the East India Company is involved in the slave trade in East Africa, uh, you know, kind of in the, the Indian Ocean, um, you know, kind of to, to some degree. Um, um, and... You know, a kind of various members thing employs slaves, um, etc. But it's not it's not a kind of major engine of the of the slave trade. Um, and by the early nineteenth century, at the time when you have kind of slavery being coming under a lot of a lot of criticism and, and you know kind of big campaigns against the slave trade, a lot of a lot of people point to the East India Company as something that the British should be doing instead of the slave trade. Um, and you know, particularly you have this whole discussion around sugar and the, the idea that well in the, in India you can you can grow sugar with free labor without slaves um uh you know kind of and so there's this argument that you can sort of shift sugar production to India now what these Indian company is doing is not particularly uh nice I mean you know kind of it's 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 ruling in a kind of in a, in a dominating way it doesn't allow uh um that you know it doesn't it doesn't allow the population it's ruling any say in how they're being governed um but it's not slavery in the kind of formal sense. So, you know, um, so it is, it's involved to some degree, but, you know, kind of later on, it, it sort of almost becomes this, um, this this opposite alternative kind of way of thinking about empire, um, you know, sort of as opposed to the slave trade, um, which, which, you know, I think we would equally oppose now, um, you know, kind of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of relatively say which is worse, I guess. So, uh in these early days, then, uh, right, right after the company is making forays into into India, into these smaller settlements, um, you know, what what what's, can you give us a sense of the scale of, of the profit it was making, or, or was it at this point, and and how it grew in terms of the money it was making? So the company, I mean, the the company's profit increases through the kind of sale of of textiles, um, but is a very profitable investment. I mean, it's it's um, the money is made by people investing. Um, you know, in stocks, in, in 
stocks that have a kind of annual dividend and so forth. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not making anyone, it's not making the kind of ordinary investors, um, you know, hugely abnormal uh, returns. Um, the way in which people have abnormal returns is through embezzlement, corruption, you know, et cetera, later on. It's, you know, when Robert Clive comes back and, you know, is given, supposedly given money by Indian rulers and that kind of thing. That's that's where people become hugely wealthy as a result of the company's, uh, as a result of their, their, their role in the company. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, illegal in the kind of com- company's kind of context. That would be defined as corruption. But in terms of in terms of its role as a place to invest, it's it was um, pretty profitable. But it was seen as quite a safe investment. So it's not you know um, you could you could make more money uh, you know if you were an investment if you were an investor in early eighteenth century England than investing in the company. It was would be a relatively safe investment within a kind of broader portfolio of, of investments. Um, you know, kind of because by that point it established itself and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as I say, it's a, a very small number of people are making a lot of, made a lot of money um, through uh, through their kind of uh, leverage, if you like, of the company the institution for private, you know, private gain of various kinds, which is something that the company frowns upon, occasionally mm-hmm. allows to happen, but, but also occasionally, much of the time, just simply bans and tries not to happen. Um, it's important, though, that then, you know, then the company actually... By by the time it is ex- expanded politically, by the time the company was taking over more and more land, and you know its army was growing. Period is that? Sorry. So we're talking about the 1750s, 1760s. Yeah. The company does the company is not making much money. Occasionally, you know, so it is, it, and it ends up in this kind of spiral where it's sort of like it, it, the company invested more money, and the British state invested more money in order to get more of a return. But then uh, that investment then creates even more liabilities, and so it just it's it's its debt actually increases. Um, you know, and you had to have these occasional moments um, where uh, the company claims that it's about to make huge amounts of money, such as in 1765 when it's given the Diwani to Bengal, you know, and the company becomes the, the ruler, but really the kind of tax collector of Bengal. And everyone thinks this is this is going to mean that the East India Company all of a sudden is going to become incredibly, incredibly wealthy and is going to just pay for the entirety of the British state and you know, kind of Robert Clive is going around, um, you know, kind of with, with propaganda about how this is an amazing moment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in fact, that leads to, again, more expenditure, you know, because running a government costs money. Uh, the, the size of the army needs to increase. Um, uh, the sort of paranoia that always accompanies the British presence in India means uh, borders need to be extended even further and further. So uh, you just mentioned Robert Clive there, and and many people might might know associate Clive of India with 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 East India Company with with the, the this episode. Um, can we perhaps talk a little bit about him and and maybe some of the other key players as well? Yeah, so Robert Clive is probably the most famous figure involved in the kind of conquest of India, um, and he was someone who you know all sorts of kind of mythology about him as being a kind of a sort of rebellious, quite violent young man who uh, you know sort of. Um, was constantly getting into scrapes and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, can, I guess leave that to, to sort of the biographies and so forth. Um, I think a couple of important points about Clive. Uh, he he was someone who very much straddled kind of c- civilian and military uh, life. Um, so he kind of was employed by the East India Company as a, as not, not as a soldier, but then ended up becoming a soldier. So demonstrates, I think, the fact that it was easy to shift between these different roles and, and kind of that, uh, you know, trade and, um, trade and kind of military action were very closely connected. Um, secondly, his career was really all about, um, you know, ways in which 
the East India Company was used as effectively a mercenary force for Indian rulers um, in that period after 1739, after Nadir Shah um, kind of, you know, um, you know, arrived from from Iran and kind of sort of uh, led to kind of a brief period of chaos throughout throughout India. So, so um, the, the moment that made him famous was the siege of Arcot, um, when uh, you know, kind of he was um, defending a town in in kind of South India, uh, you know, kind of for for a long period of time. But what he was doing was actually kind of acting as the the agent of an Indian ruler, as kind of, an, and he was very much you know somebody who. Uh, through the promise of money from an Indian, uh, from from an Indian um, Indian kind of uh, ruler, was was uh, you know taking one side rather than another, um, you know, kind of in in the kind of battles that were kind of raging throughout throughout uh, South India at that point in time. So so um, and and to some degree, the same happened at the Battle of Plassey, the most famous kind of moment when um, you know kind of Clive's um, you know Clive and his forces. Uh, retake Calcutta after it had been um uh, after the British uh, the British presence had been driven out um by uh, the ruler of Bengal Sirajadullah um and then um Clive sort of went on with his troops to defeat Sirajadullah at, at, at Plassey um but he was acting there you know as an ally of a group of Indian Indian merchants and and uh and administrators who wanted to get rid of Sirajadullah. So again it was a question of the the British taking sides in kind of Indian battles and and that's the that's so that's Clive Clive's career really sort of illustrates this really important point I think that um you know the the East India Company didn't arrive in India in order to, in order to wanting to sort of dominate but they got embroiled in things and got pulled into things and saw opportunities to um to make money and to kind of assert power and to do things that were seen as glorious. I think that Clive is constantly driven by, you know, an idea of what the headlines in Britain are going to be saying about him. And if he thinks that if he can go back as the great conqueror who led British troops in this battle or that battle, he's going to be famous and rich. Um, you know, but it's very much as, uh, you know, kind of uh, as, as participants within kind of Indian politics that that that, that uh, drives that kind of process. Um, and what's Clive's... Um how do we perceive Clive today? What what's the kind of the reading of him? Um, I think Clive is Clive is uh, incredibly greedy, uh, no question. You know, he he used every opportunity he could to um, to enrich himself personally. Um, I think as somebody who was very keen on his own image, uh, someone who was very keen on and on 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 displaying. Uh, the valour of, of somebody who, um, you know, kind of fights and conquers well. I think we need to kind of realise that the, work, the, the 18th century world that Clive was part of was very, very different from ours, in that war was often seen as a good thing just for its own sake. Conquest is something that was positive just for, for because it demonstrated the, the values that many people wanted to emulate. Um, you know, lots of philosophers at the time, you know, criti- you know, complain that kind of the public likes a good conqueror, likes a good hero, and... Um, maybe in some ways not so different from some, some things now, but um, and so you know that's what's driving Clive is is that you know kind of desire for money uh, certainly, but you know kind of more importantly than that, I think is the sense in which he um, you know kind of he, he wants to make a name for himself and wants to be a hero within this sort of very 18th century idea of heroism. But I think that's all very much part of a kind of a political scene which is about Indian politics um, rather than about sort of you know British politics necessarily. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Until it, you know, really takes um, the, the kind of the, the introduction of troops from Britain and you know soldiers from Britain and other parts of the empire, 
uh, to uh, kind of re reconquer, and it is very much reconquer, vi- very violently reconquer, um, uh, you know, kind of North India. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Okay. So these opportunities, these um, interests of of both trade of, of conquest, they, they all coalesce, and and at its peak um, of influence of territory, how how much are we talking here? What kind of influence did the East India Company hold in India? The, the East India Company is at its peak in terms of power at it, at the moment of its of its of its of its fall. Um, you know, and I don't know if you want me to go this quickly to this this late, but um, the East India Company is, is at its most powerful at the moment the moment before it is abolished. Um, you know, kind of when. Um, in 18, 1857, you know, by 1857, the East India Company had simply become the, the British government of India. Um, it no longer really had any kind of commercial role, um, but it was kept as the organisation that ruled India on behalf of the British state um, and, you know, ruled over, you know, kind of two thirds of two thirds of India. Um, uh, and, you know, at least formally, and of course, lots of parts of that territory, you know, were, were kind of governed by Indian um you know, kind of in Indian landlords or whatever, you know, in effect, but, um, you know, kind of it's, it's the sovereign, effectively, of two-thirds of Indian um, territory. Um, and, um, you know, kind of in, in 1857, there's a kind of rebellion from uh, Indian troops within the kind of East India Company's army that then becomes this broader kind of peasant revolt all across North India. And the East India Company is able, with help from the British state and with help from the British army, to, to kind of defeat that 
um, rebellion. Um, you know, it's a kind of close run, run thing, of course. And, you know, kind of uh, the, the violence on both sides is, is, is extraordinary, is, is, is just unprecedented. Um, you know, but the East India Company in, you know, 1857, 1858 is able to, to violently assert its, its power, its domination over the whole of India. And that, that moment is, is really important then for setting up British rule in India for the for the remaining ninety years, it makes mm-hmm. um, you know kind of Indians who want to kind of rebel and resist um, think twice about really to trying to deploy deploy arms um, in a foot in that kind of full frontal way because you know kind of the the, the lesson of eighteen fifty seven if you like is that kind of the British can beat you, um, but but of course immediately after that the East India Company is abolished and it was abolished because um, you know it's seen as having been responsible for this uprising. Uh, you know, even in the 1830s and 1840s, the East India Company has, has its opponents. Lots of people think that, um, well, you know, some people think the British shouldn't be ruling in India at all, some people in Britain. Lots of people think that it should be the British state which is directly responsible and, and that British Parliament should be directly accountable for Britain's uh, rule in India. And and those people kind of win the back, win the argument really kind of after the defeat of, you know, after, after this sort of crisis and then return in 1857 and 1858 and the East India Company is abolished. Uh, so before this rebellion, what what other kind of were, were there any other attempts to regulate what what kind of activities were happening there to regulate to regulate the East India Company? So so from the from from you know the days of Robert Clive onwards um, from the 1750s, 1760s, the, the, there's, there's a constant effort to regulate the East India Company, co- constant effort to eradicate corruption, uh, which means effectively have the company as a more focused source of power in India rather than having kind of British private interests undermine its, its, its authority. Um, you know, kind of there's various moments to um, to bring it to under kind of some kind of parliamentary, uh, you know, supervision. Um, and every 20 years, the East India Company's charter is renewed and there's always a big argument in Parliament about what the terms of that renewal should be. So in 1813, there's a big debate over, over whether or not East India Company should allow... Um, Christian missionaries to go to India, and the argument is by the missionaries is one, and they you know then do start to kind of go and proselytize. In 1833, there's an argument about um, you know about whether or not the company should have any kind of commercial role, and eventually it doesn't as a consequence of that. And then also what kind of force it should be and how it should be structured and so forth. So so there's a, there's a, there's a constant discussion and constant debate going on, you know, kind of uh, well not constant so much, but you know periodic. Uh, every few years, there's there's some kind of crisis, and that that calls you know, people in Parliament, British politicians, the British public kind of get involved in thinking about the East India Company. Um, and every possible view is there. Some people think the company should be abolished and British Britain should just leave India. Um, you know, there's talk about involving Indians in the government of India, uh, you know, kind of in the 1820s and 1830s. You know, talk even about having, you know, MPs from India in Parliament at, at, at some moments. You know, kind of that would have obviously really undermined the power of of of, of uh of, of the company and of, of the, the company's interest. And, and what's interesting all the way through is the way the East India Company is able, through its connection to political power, in particular through um, through the kind of 1820s and 1830s, its connection to the to the kind of Tory party, it's able to um, to sort of uh, to, to, to retain, to win the argument, I suppose, and to actually kind of persuade enough people that um, changing the structure of government and getting rid of the East India Company would undermine British power in India and also would undermine the kind of financial interests of people who have some kind of stake in the company's authority. So, so by the 1820s, 1830s, there are just too many people who are part of, if you like, the British establishment who have a stake in the company's survival to, to mean that 
it can be abolished until that moment of cataclysmic crisis in 1857. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this is um, precipitated by that, 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 that rebellion. Um, if, if we could talk more generally, and I realise, again, we're talking about a vast territory and vast regional differences, um, but more generally about um, the what's known about the the feelings of of Indian people towards the East India Company. I mean, the company... So, so, so lot, Indians had lot, have lots of, lots of different views about the East India Company. Um, I mean, it's very hard to say that there's a kind of single view. Obviously, there are no opinion polls or anything like that. Um, the company is always seen as strange. So it's always seen as... Um, by most people in India, by, by most kind of people who comment, commentate and who write about it, um, as an organisation that is sort of out of kilter with Indian political traditions. Um, and one of the important things about the way it acts is, is the fact that decisions are made behind closed doors and its power isn't visible. And, you know, in kind of Mughal and another Indian kind of political traditions, you know, kind of political power obviously is concentrated in, in, in the emperor and the governor, in, in, in Rajas and whoever. But... Um, it's always visible. It's it's always you know there's kind of a certain splendor around it. Um, you know every day rulers will appear before windows will be, will, di- will display themselves kind of to the public in order to kind of provide some kind of security if you like in order to say I'm still here I'm still acting uh, you know and there's an idea of acting somehow or other in some kind of public interest you know kind of obviously these are highly authoritarian societies in a certain way but you know there's a kind of an idea of being accountable and and there is the the idea that if you're a if you're kind of a subject of a ruler, then you can go and, you know, prostrate yourself before the ruler and they will take you seriously. And often that does happen. You know, of course, that's that's a myth myth to some degree. It's a kind of, it, it, you know, but it does happen. There are, there are cases where, you know, lots of cases where people do go before an Indian ruler and, and kind of, and and have some kind of justice uh, meted out. And the company, of course, has structures of justice. It has ways in which it listens to people who have complaints, it has courts, it has a legal system, but the way in which it administers all that is very different from the kind of, from Indian political traditions in that it happens behind closed doors. So there's a sense of kind of secrecy and, and, um, you know, you you can never quite trust the English, the East India Company, you know, kind of there. And and there's also an idea that they're always divided amongst each other. There's always these arguments between different parts of the company, because this is government often by committees, government where there isn't necessarily a single, um, point of power, um, even when you have viceroys, you know, not viceroys, when you have governors general, um, power is fragmented somehow or other, um, you know, sort of. Uh, and so Indians notice that and think that this is kind of a, a sort of a very fractious, very argumentative, very um, uh, very fickle kind of power that they simply can't, can't often can't trust. Um, so that view is there. But obviously lots of people do work for these Indian companies. There are, ways, there are ways in which it's possible for people to, to go about their ordinary business, to be good bureaucrats, to be administrators, to be soldiers, those kind of jobs are there, um, and lots of them don't change that much in, in what, what you're supposed to, to, to do. Um, you know, the company needs people to, to, to make its machinery work. So, so there are, you know, you can you can you can work for it. Um, and, and there are people who have positive stories about Eastern Company Rule. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And um, we, we've got a couple of reader questions. Um, we've talked obviously a lot about their, their involvement in India, but we've got a couple of reader questions about the Opium Wars um, and and China. Um, one from uh, Vintage Victory One: Was it the East India Company which brought tea to India from China? Um, what extent was tea important? To what extent was tea important to its status and power? 
And, and another reader, um, A. Mariam, is asking, what role did the East India Company play in the 19th century opium war? So perhaps we could talk a bit about that triangular trade India uh, between India, China and Britain and how that kind of came about. Yeah, so the East India Company is very, it's very instrumental in, um, in, um, in, in the kind of, in, in tea and kind of, in, in, and in um, obviously exp- expanding the growth of tea, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, kind of uh, th- throughout the, the area. So, um, and, um, you know, kind of tea became, by the sort of early 19th century, or by, by the sort of 1810s, 1820s, tea is the most important trade that the East India Company is trading. I mean, everything else disappears apart from tea. Um, and, you know, kind of tea is kind of, you know, became a kind of an exception to, you know, to uh, things such as, you know, when the company sort of relinquishes its mono- monopoly, tea is the sort of last kind of monopoly that's that's there. So it's important. And it's important because it's, it's an important source of revenue, um, you know, kind of in order to sustain the, the sort of, um, you know, the commercial flows, the kind of flows of money that, that go that go between, uh, you know, sort of Britain and, 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 and India. And that's kind of essential there all the way through. Um, and, you know, kind of it, it's, it has a similar role, you know, has a role um, within the opium wars too, you know, kind of it's, it's, um, again, it's trying to kind of maintain a monopoly on the trade of opium, um, you know, kind of it's looking for places for people to buy opium, uh, it's kind of instrumental in that kind of context. Um, I mean, I think the the um, it, it's well, it's, you know, we shouldn't though overestimate its 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 it, the, the importance of tea or opium within the company's role. You know, the company is the important is, is important within the opium trade and within the tea trade, but the opium trade and the tea tea trade are not central to what the company is doing in India because by the time they're important. The, the company is effectively acting as a state and is collect, collecting most of its revenues coming to, from taxes. And, you know, uh, it, it's, it's really, its interest is in land really more than opium or tea. Okay. So, so when do we see, or, or do we see this, this shift then moves from a more of a trading interest into this idea of a, might not be the right term, but a, a civilizing mission, um, or at least on the surface, they put this this um, seemingly seeming interest out. Even there, there never, there never is a civilizing mission. The civil, civilizing mission doesn't exist. Um, the company is per, company's purpose is to maintain its own power and to uh, maintain British prestige and so forth. And the um, the the civilized the, the, there are there are moments when in in front of Parliament, uh, British uh, com- you know officials or, or, or supporters of the East India Company say, oh, no, no, what we're doing is actually, um, you know, good for India. Um, but it never has that as a purpose and it never spends any money on it. I mean, you can look at that by just looking at the astonishingly tiny amount of money that the East India Company, and even after 1858, after the company's abolished, the British state spends on, on education and schools. It's, it's an absolutely minuscule amount of money. Um, you know, so, so we can get really easily sidetracked by the idea of a civilising mission when, um, you know, it, it, it basically doesn't exist, you know, kind of when, when the company are building infrastructure, when the company are, even when they're opening schools, what they're doing is building machinery that allows them to survive in India, to govern in India. The schools that they open are there to train administrators to administer British institutions in order to maintain British power. Um, so... Um, like the taxes you mentioned. Yeah, precisely. It's like the, you know, the taxes are kind of uh, taxes are being fed back into this kind of it's, it's this kind of circular process. There's this kind of circular process in which the, the function of the British of being in India is to be in India, um, and and all sorts of people have an interest in that, and they need to maintain their interest. And that and that then means that you know you get things like you know in the last, late years of the East India Company, you get things like 
the company starting to be interested in irrigation schemes. Well, um, you know, right, you know, in the 1840s and so forth. The reason why is because there's a famine, and that famine really badly affects company revenue, and so people need to go and if there any, there's something very peculiar about the way in which um, people think about um, the East India Company and the British in India to, to think the function of the state is to is to civilize the country. I don't think people would normally look at you know the government of Britain or whatever. And you know when we looked at the government of Britain, we'd think, oh well, what is it interested in? It's interested in it's a machine that's interested in in a, whole, a structure that has a whole series of, of purposes. It's not you know where you know kind of. Um, you know, including, of course, the welfare of the population, but that's not the way in which we normally th- tend to think about states in the 18th and 19th century. Um, so, so why why do you think we've we've come to think about the ESC as because we have this way? weird moralistic, you know, kind of whenever anyone uses the word empire, it becomes a moral debate. You know, kind of nobody thinks about the Prussian state in the 18th century and says, was did it have a civilizing mission? You know, the Prussian state in the 18th century is a state that's interesting in maintaining its power in in a kind of glo- in a geopolitical global kind of context um you know similarly for the british state in britain but but there's a kind of weird way in which i think probably towards the end of empire there was a, 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 as britain was leaving empire in the 18, 1950s and 19 you know 1940s and 1950s um you know kind of and then subsequently we, there's been a a kind of an attempt to um you know to sort of legitimize kind of you know something that everyone thought at the time was 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 operating according to principles which are very different from those that kind of were, were floating around in, in, in government and so forth at the time. Um, and, you know, so, so there's this kind of narrative that kind of moralises things. And it, it and it's just very, very... And, and now we obviously have these really kind of silly arguments between, you know, kind of, uh, you know, which relates the statues and all that kind of stuff. And people are saying, oh, no, these people were forces for good. And it's like, well, that's not how we view any other kind of government. I mean, um, so, so it's... it's, it's it's the way empire became a kind of political football, I think, in the 20th century. That's what that's what this is about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we need to remember that, you know, 19, in the 19th century, the empire, um, conquest was celebrated. It was seen as just a good thing in itself. You know, just being a conquering power. Often you didn't need a reason for that. You know, it's just, it's about British power and British power is a good thing. Well, but to step perhaps on on that that very very interesting point, uh, I mean James's question is perhaps a little binary given what you just said. Did they do any good in the world, or was it all bad? And I realise it can't just be categorised simply like you just said. But I guess they're positive. He's asking more about generally about positive influence versus uh, that that word that not. I just, right word not an- I just want to not answer that question about positive or negative because it's not the kind of question that we ask about any other kind of government. It's just a very peculiar thing that we ask of the British Empire because empire has become this kind of political, weird political football that has no relationship actually to the real history of empire. Um, You know, nobody in the 19th century was going around, um, well, this kind of debate about whether empire was a force for good didn't exist in the 19th century. There were certainly debates about particular moments that were seen as bad or good, but but it's not, you know, um, there isn't the same kind of, I mean, the idea of empire as this kind of single thing is doesn't make much sense, you know, kind of for, for a start. Um, and even the British Empire in India. So I think that we need to accept that, that um, you know, that the way we think about politics in the 20th century is very, very different from the way in which people thought about politics in the 19th century. And, and you know, they're, they're, you know the, all the criticisms that exist of empire in the 20th century were possible in the 19th century, of course. Um, but the kind of logic that underpinned political power and the way in which um, pe- we, we talk about what states are for and what states do is just completely different. This is a world in which, demo- you know, democracy is unthinkable, you know, kind of, you know, 19, the world the world in which the British Empire existed. 
Um, you know, so, um, for example, you know, kind of this is a world in which, you know, kind of uh, you know, most people in Britain didn't have a kind of serious say in how government is, is run, etc. So just things that are just fun, so fundamentally different from what we're thinking about um, now make kind of empire make, make sense and make that kind of question was empire force for good, you know, kind of according to kind of our current way, ways of thinking, just not, not actually make much sense. It's, so you just can't, it's just impossible to answer, you know, answer that kind of question. Yeah, very, very fair, very fair point. Um, going, going back to the peak then, uh, you, you mentioned that the peak of, of their influence, their territory is obviously right before, before their fall. Um, but putting that in some kind of context uh, for our listeners, how, how much, just how much territory was under EIC control? And, and can you give any kind of, uh, correlation of what that would you know wealth-wise, uh, what that might mean in influence today. Well, the, well, the, the East India Company was the dominant political force in the whole of the Indian subcontinent, which means from Afghanistan to to Burma, um, and you know it had direct kind of sovereignty or, or some kind of di- direct kind of uh, rule over two thirds of that. Although I think it's important to to then kind of sort of pick away at that a little bit and see that actually the reality of that often is. Is that British power is quite weak in many places, and you have large, you know, because as as I've said, the British British, British interested in maintaining their power in um, in their kind of centres of sovereignty, in you know, kind of in their forts, in their towns, etc. Um, they're they're interested in ensuring that their population is that the British people are safe, and and then they're not hugely interested in kind of what's going on elsewhere unless it affects them. So so Brit- the important point is that kind of. In theory, British power is extraordinary. It's one of the largest empires in the world. Um, um, but, but actually, the reality of British power is quite patchy. So there are areas where there isn't that much British power in, in, um, in, in practice. I mean, what's important for, for, for Britain is that kind of 19th century, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Brit- India is seen as important for Britain's 19th century global um, presence, you know, kind of... Uh, there's a reason why, you know, even in the very early 19th, 19th century, Napoleon wants to invade and, and, and you know, India, you know, kind of his uh, occupation of Egypt is, you know, he says is all about kind of moving on then to, into, to India. So, you know, kind of Russia is trying to encroach upon the British British territory in India. So so in a kind of geopolitical sense, India is very, very important to Britain's kind of global, global presence. Um, I think it, it's really hard, though, to quantify what actually that power means in India, because, simply because power political power in the 19th century is a very different kind of thing from how we talk about political power now. You know, there's, you know, it's perfectly possible, I'm sure, for, for, for someone to, to travel for 50 miles without ever seeing a British, someone British, you know, whatever, um, in India, you know, kind of the, the state's presence in large parts of India was fairly light, um, you know, kind of uh, the British state is engaging with, the East India Company state is engaging with more, you know, with elites rather than with the population at large, and and so on. Um, um, so, yeah, and, and very different from the way in which we think about government now. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so we've already talked a bit about about the downfall, the the rebellion that prompted the British state to to intervene, and and what happened there with the handover. But perhaps it's worth going back to that. How how exactly did that transition of of power um, happen, uh, and what happened to to the assets and to what what happened there? Um, so, I mean, the rebellion of eighteen fifty seven is 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 if you like the culmination of a series of revolts and wars and conflicts. Uh, you know, conflicts, and we have often had this this rather false false view that um, you know early in the nineteenth century the British rule in India was consolidated because if you look at a map, it looks like the East India Company is ruling most of India by the early nineteenth you know by, by the eighteen twenties say. Um, 
in reality, this is a, a period of constant struggle, conflict, war. Um, the major um, political rivals to the East India Company are defeated in the 1820s, and then, you know, um, at least within kind of within India, and then you have, you know, kind of Punjab, you know, kind of Burma um, uh, states on the fringes that kind of are defeated kind of later on. Um, but that process of war kind of is creating tensions within Indian society. Um, and, you know, so British rulers became uh, in many ways more aggressive um, at the same time as it relies more upon Indians to be upheld because, you know, conflict is being fought with British, with, with Indian troops. troops. So there's this kind of, this tension that's emerging really, really, and, and the rebellions increase, mutinies increase, um, you know, paid from 1820s, 1830s, 1840s is, is, a, is a violent and unstable one. And, you know, if you like, I think those tensions kind of sort of end up, you know, culminating in this, in this kind of mutiny, in which it's not surprising that it's the people, the Indians who are the closest to the British state, soldiers, in other words, who've had the most exposure to, to British power and who the British rely on the most, who are the ones who rebel. Um, you know, I th- uh, so, um, and, and it's, uh, you know, the rebellion in, in, you know, a series of barracks in North India um, against um, the quite harsh way in which the British are trying to govern their troops um, and all sorts of complaints and all sorts of concerns. But but fundamentally, fundamentally the, the, the rebellion is, is about um, Indian soldiers thinking that their way of life is very fundamentally going to be altered and, and undermined by British power. The, the, the soldiers who rebel um, think the British are trying to do lots of things that they're not actually trying to do. Like, you know, they're, they're, yes, there was an attempt to convert, convert them to Christianity, but there was very little conversion by force. Um, you know, there's no... There's no kind of wholesale effort to undermine Indian civilization in the way in which they the, the, the soldiers think. But there are a number of you know point flashpoints, if you like, and things that are um, things that are kind of moments when you know kind of it looks like actually kind of the British British um, you know kind of trying to trying to transform things. And if you like, if they had the power, would have tried to transform things more fundamentally that, that lead to Indian soldiers thinking that the only really their only option to to kind of maintain their way of life and to, to, to maintain any kind of sense of themselves as, um, you know, as Hindus and Muslims, for example, is, is, is to rebel. And so you have this kind of interaction and that leads then to, uh, you know, kind of the, the countryside rebels across the countryside, uh, you know, peasants across the countryside rebelling. Um, uh, and, you know, the whole of North India is, uh, is, is, um, is, is a war zone and, you know, kind of uh, out of British rule and all sorts of, you know, and, and and every kind of ruler, really, every local ruler has a moment of choice and they have a moment of choice about whether they, well, three ways, really, which is whether they join the British, whether they, whether they uh, you know, in a very emphatic way, whether they rebel or whether they just don't do anything for a while and lots of them don't do anything and, and you know, see which way the wind's blowing, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a decent number who, you know, kind of, uh, who, who join the who join the rebels? Sorry, and you know the momentum of the rebellion grows and grows and grows. So um, until it you know really takes um, the, the kind of the, the introduction of troops from Britain and you know soldiers from Britain and other parts of the empire uh, to uh, kind of re re um, reconquer, and it is very much reconquer, vi- very violently reconquer. Um, uh, you know, kind of North India, um, and and I think that's a really key moment that transforms. It trans- transforms the nature of British rule because um, you know North India has had the emphatic assertion of British military force upon every part of it in you know kind of in, in 1857, 1858. You know this is 
you know, the, the, the violence of the rebels is devastating and the violence of the British in response is devastating. And there's a kind of a British celebration of violence. There's no question about that. Some of the there's very early photographs that, you know, um, in which the photographers sort of arrange skulls outside of the blown up buildings to show the scale of force that's there. So this is a kind of weird moment in which kind of, uh, you know, um, the British are sort of celebrating how violent they can be, um, you know, kind of, and, and that really does does transform things quite fundamentally. And, and it makes um, it, there's this, I think it creates kind of unease on the part of, um, you know, there's this kind of huge uh, assertion of violence in, in, a, in a way that is um, unprecedented and very, very emotional and very kind of moralistic and all these things on the part of the British. Um, but it also creates on the part of the British state a moment of unease and a moment of, of concern that, you know, that violence can just spill over or had, had spilled over and can just, you know, lead to Britain actually losing control of India. And, and there's, a re- I think, a recognition of that, a recognition that, um, you know, this overwhelming violence is needed to defeat the British. But it's also, it, it will create, um, it, it will undermine British power, you know, kind of because it would simply create a response. And so, so there is a very sort of clear moment when the British say, we're going to stop now. We're, we're going to, you know, we're going to stop fighting uh, there's a de- you know the de- declaration Queen Victoria's declaration which basically says you know um, uh, you know kind of uh, that's it you know we've we've now brought India to heel effectively and kind of we're not we're, we're, the violence is going to is not going to continue and you know Indian rulers who wish can submit themselves to the British um, and that kind of moment I think makes the company quite hard to, to, to it's impossible for the company to survive because this is a moment of um, it's a moment in which British power has been asserted so so directly, I think, and there's a sense in which the only way in which that power can stop is if is it, if it's kind of if it's regulated, if it's limited very directly by by the British state, and so the company actually as a sort of intermediary just just evaporates, and so it's very hard to to, to have it survive, I think, and and so it ends up being being abolished and and you know all the people who've been arguing for its abolition for the previous 20 years or so are just you know they win the argument and and so and so it's parliament that directly takes over the the, the government of, of india in practice there isn't that much of a in terms of the formal structure of british war i think there's a there's a real difference in the attitude and in the mood of british power as i said because the, you know the british have asserted overwhelming force over the whole of North India. Um, but in terms of the structure, there isn't much of a difference other than now the line of accountability goes through a kind of secretary of state and goes to parliament and goes through Queen, Queen Victoria, you know, directly. But, um, and, and the structure of government in terms of, you know, local government officials and so forth doesn't change that much. Mm-hmm. And I guess we'd be going beyond the bounds of this podcast a bit to go into the Raj, but but perhaps given your expertise, we could talk just a little bit about the that, reg- that regime is that the right word? Yeah, I think I think I didn't I didn't you know until until I wrote my last book, India Conquered. I didn't think that 1857 was as important as it was, but I think actually it is important um, as a moment in which British power is very directly and symbolically asserted, and it it is you know called you know the the Raj. You know there is this account of the the the, the um, it, that's not an official title, but you know kind of people start to call use use that kind of royal language to talk about British power. You know. Queen Victoria is the Empress of India. Um, you know, in fact, she'd been described a little bit like that beforehand. But you know, so there is this. The the, the new thing that happens is is the, the the is is the importance of symbolism and the importance of kind of of um, formal structures of symbolic power. You know, kind of allowing uh, you know kind of uh, you know buttressing British power. I think you know kind of 
it remains a force that is very much about kind of the, the ability to deploy violence if necessary. Um, you know, kind of, and um, but 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 the the state's assertion of power in this kind of in some kind of symbolic means, I think, becomes becomes more and more more and more important. And so, you know, pageantry becomes more important. For example, um, um, you know, there, there are um, infrastructure projects and so forth that are about quite visible demonstrations of British power, including the railways and so forth, are, are, are you know, kind of uh, escalate, for example, you know, increase in, in number and, and, and so on. So, and I think there's a funny way in which, so so the British power becomes, you know, more more direct and is is, is asserted um, uh, in in this kind of more, more sort of explicit way, um, uh, you know, kind of with, with the Raj. Um, it kind of creates the idea, the potential idea of some kind of accountability that didn't exist before. And the Indians can say, well, hold on a minute, the, the Queen is now the ruler in a very direct way. So I have someone I can p- appeal to, um, you know, there is a structure that allows me to kind of have, have some kind of conversation with, with, uh, my, with my rulers and so forth. And in reality, that doesn't happen. There's not very much of that happening until much later on. But it creates some kind of notion, I think, that this is a different kind of regime, potentially, um, you know, kind of that... That could that could be more accountable, um, you know, sort of uh, that, that Indians could be involved in. I think also there's a sense in which lots of Indians who have very negative views of of, Brit- of the British, and I'm talking about middle class Indians, elite Indians, people who work in government and so forth, um, just realise that actually it's, there's not much point in being very explicitly critical uh, because there's the example of the mutiny, there's the example of the devastating violence of 1857, um, and you know so. Um, so really, if criticism is going to criticism needs to find a different register, it needs to find a different a different style. Of course, there was a, there's, there's rebellion afterwards, of course, but it's it tends to be much more um, much more distant from from formal political power. It tends to be you know peasant rebellions. It tends to be you know kind of people who are um, on on the fringes of of society more who are kind of you know, rebelling and, and who are kind of insurgents um, because you know anyone who belongs to Indian ruling families just simply knows well this is what. You know, there's there's no possibility of overturning British British rule uh, um, through kind of war. Um, you know, there's no there's no real point in trying to return to some kind of pre uh, 1857 style of government. You know, kind of uh, which lots of people have wanted before. Um, you know, you can't you can't hanker after the Mughal Empire because the Mughal Empire has now been you know utterly defeated. You know, kind of in, in 1857. Um, so I think there's important, really important shift in kind of political. In, in political thinking, you know, kind of, you know, both to, to some degree by the British, but more so, I think, by Indians. Um. So if we go into another listener question then, um, Andrew Millican on Facebook asks, what happened to the East India Company's assets when it was wound up? Um, they became the British state's assets. And then in India, they became um, the, the, the British the government of India. Um, and in Britain, pretty much the same. One interesting one, which again, you might be loath to make these kind of correlations, but um, uh, on Facebook, Ado Mohammed asks, compared to today's tech multinationals um, like Amazon, Google, etc., um, how powerful, influential was the EIC on people's day to day lives? Can we can we make any answer to that? So compared to, so I think it's really important when we think about the company, not to think about the company, a company. Um, the East India Company isn't a company in the way in which we think about it now. The, to, to compare it is, doesn't make any sense. It's company really means kind of organisation. It doesn't mean uh, company in, this, in, in, in the way we mean um, 
today, I don't think. Um, so, of course, the company, East India Company, like companies today, was interested in making money for the early years of its history, certainly. But the reason why it was a company was because um, the ordinary structures of trade didn't apply. And of course, currently, tech multinationals, very much that is the ordinary structure in which kind of trade occurs. So, so, so I think that kind of uh, there's a really nice kind of easy, which lots of extremely good historians and writers kind of, you know, do a nice analogy between sort of, you know, corporate power then and corporate power now. And, you know, um, I, I'm not hugely averse to that kind of comparison, but I, but I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's hugely helpful. I think that kind of as a way of entering into the history of the East India Company, it's better to think about actually the, the history of a state and the history of kind of governmental power. Um, I think, though, so, so actually, let's so let's compare a state now with a state with with the East India Company, and, and in a way, you can compare Amazon and Google with a state to some degree. You know, kind of, and you know, their forms of, of of intervention in people's lives are not so different. Maybe you know, kind of, how they do they monitor, they track, etc. Um, and I think what's important is just that the that you know any state, um, and particularly the East India Company uh, in kind of the eighteenth century, had a, an in, inordinately weaker influence on people's lives compared to um, kind of institutions around now um, uh, because they just simply don't have the, the kind of institutional means, they don't have the technological means um, to do the kind of things that state, states do now. And I think there really, there really is a kind of revolution in, in, in both corporate and, and state power that occurs in the 20th century that is all about um, kind of bureaucracy, it's all about, uh, you know, kind of surveillance of various kinds, it's about... Um, you know, forms of technology that kind of, that are, um, I'm not talking about, in, I'm not talking about IT, I'm talking about electricity, you know, I'm talking about railways, I'm talking about that kind of thing, um, which which just al- simply allow states and companies to do a lot more than they could do, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sort of 200, 300 years ago. So, um, you know, this is a world in which it took, you know, it took nine months to reach India. You know, so how much power is anyone in London really having over a society when, if you want to send an order, yeah, fine, maybe you could rush it there in four months. Um, you know, so so we need to think about power in a completely different way. Um, so so things are much more dispersed, things are much more localised, um, you know, kind of, that isn't to say that the man on the spot, if you like, the administrator kind of in India, the, in the British administrator in India doesn't have influence. Of course, they have lots of influence. And and I think the most important difference is, of course, that they're, 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 that power is about violence, power is about force. It's not about surveillance, it's not about monitoring, and that, it's that, not that kind of thing. It's about... Um, this kind of incredibly destructive power of violence, um, but you know, you know, violence is devastating, but it 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 only lasts a certain amount of time. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, kind of it's not it's not sustained in the same way that maybe you know Amazon and Google influence it and these things. So so we need to kind of think about just a radically a dramatically different world when we think when we're comparing the kind of power that exists then and now. If I if I can ask perhaps a broad one maybe to wrap us up, and I hope this isn't too reductive, but. Um, if we look at East India Company in the early um, 17th century, you know, making its first forays and then looking at the peak mid-19th century, how, how did it change India in, in most broad terms in that period? I mean, the most important thing is that um, by the mid-19th century, um, there aren't the kind of states and forms of government and forms of political power that existed in India, um, you know, kind of in, in 1700 or, or whatever, or, or 1600. Um, and, that, you know, India is a land of... India was a land of lots of fairly small forms of government. You know, we have this idea of the Mughal Empire, but in fact, there were sort of thousands of um, chieftaincies of mini petty states, um, 
you know, kind of local uh, local rulers of various kinds, rajas, etc. And that's the kind of and in, so India is this has a really complicated patchwork of political patchwork in which kind of power is about sort of built. You know, political power is about building up from the bottom, if you like. From is about building alliances of you know, kind of lots of small landlords, small chieftains on your side. And then if you have enough, enough, then you can rule a certain area and so forth and so forth and so forth. And that's the Mughal Empire is really, the Mughal Emperor really is the, is, is a, is a ruler of ruler, ruler of rulers. I mean, the Mughal Emperor is one of the titles, Shah and Shah, which is, you know, kind of uh, king of kings. But in fact, they're king of kings of kings of kings of kings, you know, because there are so many levels of power there. And so that kind of really complicated, dense structure of political power that meant that, Actually, things things were quite mobile and were quite fluid, and there's always somebody who you can negotiate with. There's always somebody you can flee to. Often, if 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 you're uh, you do something that is bad, that kind of world is gone, and you have things are much flatter, you know. And, and so it's um, and of course there are in many places, um, you know, intermediaries of various kinds. There are rulers who are uh, you know there there are landlords and so forth. But they but the British British kind of maintains you know wants to maintain them in check to a degree they you know limit the amount that they can bear arms they you know kind of try and restrict their power um and in some places it's east india company officials who are who are um well, not quite collecting rent but almost even collecting rent from from peasants so um you know kind of so so the political landscape of india is just radically different you know completely different and and um and i think that kind of structure of power you know the structure of power that existed in the 17th century or, or, or whenever you know under the Mughal empire it's you know, had many limits, you know, kind of it meant that, you know, it was, it, it's hard to imagine, for example, large kind of, you know, large um, factory enterprises, it's hard to imagine kind of huge industrialization occurring because things have broken up into smaller kind of units and so forth. But it did maintain a kind of certain amount of, of prosperity, you know, trade is protected by these, this kind of sort of dense network of, com- of connections and so forth um, that exists in India. Um, you know, when there's a famine, there are people who can support you. Um, there are people who have grain that's stored who need need you to work on their land, and so they're going to try and make sure that you don't die out. That's that kind of protection disappears, and, and that's why you know mid nineteenth century India the famines are much more devastating you know than they were beforehand. So, um, and you know so power has just become much more simpler and uh, you know and, and much barer I think, and there's fewer places where um, you know kind of uh, Indian you know Indian Indians can. Uh, few people who can support kind of sort of Indian livelihoods and so forth. That was John Wilson. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Catherine Bailey will be speaking about her Second World War book, Phase War. Mm-hmm.